This is the Decoding Obesity Podcast, where we simplify, demystify, and decode obesity, helping you lose weight and feel great. So gear up for a fascinating journey through this ever-evolving field, and let's see what we find. And please remember that the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice. Don't forget to visit our website, www.decodingobesity.com, for show notes and more info. And now, here's your host of the Decoding Obesity Podcast, Dr. Avishkar Sabarwal. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Decoding Obesity Podcast. There has always been a debate about glycemic index of foods and how it relates to the release of insulin. Then came along this concept of glycemic load. Both of these have remained fairly controversial with some studies suggesting their importance in obesity while others indicating otherwise. Well, I'm very excited to have with me Dr. Richard Lindquist to discuss this. He is one of the directors of the American Board of Obesity Medicine. He's a trustee of the Washington State Chapter of the American Society of Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery. He has practiced as a full-time obesity specialist for 15 years and has now transitioned to consulting. Welcome, Dr. Lindquist. Thank you very much, Avishkar. Thanks for inviting me. I'm so excited to have you. So let's begin by describing these terms. People talk about glycemic load, glycemic index. I think glycemic index is a much more popular term than glycemic load. So what do these exactly mean? Right. Well, people needed a way to describe what happened when you ate certain foods and what would happen to your blood sugar. And so the terms glycemic index and glycemic load entered the vocabulary around ways to describe blood sugar. Essentially, the glycemic index relates to how much your blood sugar will spike. If you eat a food and your blood sugar really goes up, that's said to have a high glycemic index. Well, if you have a little bit of food with a high glycemic index, you may get a little bitty spike. So you've got to figure out what do you do with larger amounts of food? How do you describe it? And that's where glycemic load comes in. So glycemic load is the total amount of carbohydrate, if you will. And glycemic index is how much that particular carbohydrate makes your blood sugar spike. What they kind of both have in common is the area under the curve. So if you have a food that has a high glycemic index and you eat a lot of it, you'll get a big spike and it'll take perhaps a couple hours to go down. If you have a food with a lower glycemic index, the blood sugar will go up more slowly and it will come down perhaps more slowly over time. But the idea is that you've got some terms to describe what happens with the carbohydrates that you eat and how much of a blood sugar response you get. Right. And so where does this glycemic index, where did it come from? Like, why did we start worrying about glycemic index? Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I actually got online and did a little bit of research knowing that this question might come up, right? Because <laughs> I've heard it out of the nutrition literature. It, it came into obesity work out of the nutrition literature and then out of the diabetes literature for nutritional control. But the term itself, according to Wikipedia, goes back to 1981 and an article by Dr. David Jenkins, Department of Nutritional Sciences, University of Toronto in Canada. So it's entered the vernacular. Quite honestly, I wasn't quite sure what to do with the term glycemic index, glycemic load, because every time there's been studies done that really look at it, not everybody agrees on what actually happens. And some foods may have a high glycemic index, but their insulin response isn't really as high. So yeah. In theory, and I think in practice, the glycemic index and glycemic load 
is useful for giving you a rough idea of what happens to the carbohydrates that you eat. Because ultimately, all carbohydrates require insulin for their metabolism. Right. And we use glycemic index and glycemic load as sort of a surrogate for visualizing what's happening to insulin the insulin response with people. And I don't know if you've heard of this term, and I could be wrong here, but they also talk about the insulin index. I don't know if you've heard of that at all as a more accurate measure of how the insulin responds to a particular food. And I don't know if that's a more accurate way of you know looking at all of this. Yeah, you know, it could be. I haven't in practice used insulin sure. index, but I think that certainly you have to correlate what happens with the insulin response to what you think is going on with the particular food and whatever glycemic index that it has. But that's right. You're really looking at the insulin response. Yeah. There are so many studies out there. You know, I did my research when I was going to talk about this topic. And there are studies saying, oh, yeah, this relates to obesity. There are meta-analyses talking about how higher glycemic index and higher glycemic load, how they correlate with obesity. And then there are other studies like randomized trials that disprove this whole concept. Where do you stand on this in your 15 years of experience? Well, that's right. It gets back to, I think that the glycemic index and glycemic load are useful for having an initial conversation around specifically carbohydrate metabolism, because fat has a glycemic index of zero, doesn't make your blood sugar go up, and protein has a low glycemic index. I would have to look and see. So it's basically carbohydrates with the idea that the sweeter ones make it spike better, right? And that's about as much utility that I personally find out of it with patients. In my practice, it's good to explain to patients, hey, look, you know, it's not just how sweet the substance you eat, it's also how much of it. So people get that. They say, oh, you know, some foods will make my blood sugar spike and others not so much. Ultimately, as a guy who tends to use a lower carb approach in my nutritional counseling, that's sort of my default, it's really helpful to explain that to people. You say, look, all carbohydrates eventually have to be metabolized. And the concept of a glycemic index and glycemic load is useful for that purpose. But I don't find it that useful, particularly in terms of obesity. obesity, Yeah. Now, the diabetes people in the CDEs, the certified diabetic educators, some of them talk a lot about glycemic index, glycemic load. And people get that. They understand, oh, what I eat does affect my blood sugar. And that's kind of to us, it's like, that's pretty common. But it's actually a revolutionary idea because if you go back 20 years, major organizations didn't see a big difference between carbohydrates from grains and carbohydrates from gummy bears or fruit juice. That was something that, oh, fruit juice is healthy for you. Eh, Wrong answer. It's got as much sugar as an equivalent amount of soda. So that's part of the dialogue. The concepts of GI and GL, glycemic index, glycemic load, they're useful, but only to a certain point, I think, clinically. Right. Yeah, I agree with you. And there's the other thing is, we just talked about how sweet the thing is, but there are artificial sweeteners. What about those? Yeah. What do they fall? <laughs> That's another controversial area. I can tell you how I've synthesized information that I have and what I tell patients. I say, look, your brain becomes programmed to a sweet taste. If you give sugar to babies, oh, they'll just zoom right in on, oh, this is good, you know? Right. And we develop a association with a sweet taste and nutritional content, right? If you eat something that's sweet, if you eat a piece of fruit or you eat pastry, you get some sweetness and you're going to have nutrients from that. With artificial sweeteners, you get the sweet taste, but you don't get the nutrients. So what happens in there? And I look at it this way. We know that you actually get a little bit of an insulin response. 
Yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah, even with the artificial sweeteners, even though there is no sugar there. There's no sugar. Yeah, so there is no sugar, but because the sweet taste itself, it still does give you an insulin response. It does. It does. Now, what I do not know, and some of your listeners may be probably smarter than me, but what I don't know is how much of that is conditioned to learning that when there's a sweet taste, there's going to be calories, and so your body produces an insulin response. And how much of that is just physiologic related to the sweet taste? I think you'd have to look at probably at children and who've never had sugar and see what happens if you give them artificial sweeteners. Somebody's probably done these studies and you probably get comments, which would be good, right? It would add to the dialogue. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But artificial sweeteners, practical sense, I tell people, look, your body doesn't know if there's something attached to that sweet taste or not. So you're going to get an insulin response. And you probably, within a few minutes, will actually be hungry because you get an insulin response, which will then drive your blood sugar down. Now you have a relative hypoglycemia, and that's one of the drivers we know for hunger. So right. one other thing before, if we're going to move on from this, people say, well, how bad are artificial drinks for you? There's literature that shows that patients with the biggest problem with obesity are the highest consumers of artificial sweeteners, right? Right. Well, if there's no calories in that, it's not causing you to gain weight from artificial sweeteners. But again, it's reinforcing some of that physiologic change that your body knows, and it's reinforcing it psychologically. You get used to, oh, I need that sweet taste. And I don't think the artificial sweeteners cause the weight gain. I think it's much more complex issue than that. Right, right, right. In the litany of sins, and I would put artificial sweeteners not very high especially when you compare them to what people would otherwise right. <laughs> be taking. I mean, there's data to suggest that beverages sweetened with artificial sweeteners are associated with some weight loss. So there is data to support the use of artificial sweeteners in patients who are suffering from obesity. But then there's a bigger, bigger question here that artificial sweeteners are replacing something and yes. then the whole point is also that once you've consumed something with artificial sweeteners, you think that you've really not taken any calories, so you're going to try and compensate for it. Having said that, now I cannot disprove the studies that say that artificial sweeteners are associated with some weight loss, and I shouldn't say beneficial. They are helpful in patients with obesity. Well, that's right. That's right. And so that ties into a parallel topic here, which is meal replacement strategies. So if you look, for example, at most, if not all of the meal replacement strategies, they use artificial sweeteners in order to give people that sweet taste people are conditioned to. So people like them and the companies that manufacture products have figured that out, right? Right. But if you use artificial sweetened products in the context of, let's just say, a low calorie diet with meal replacements is all or part, yeah, you lose weight, to which I would say that depends on the rest of the structure that's present to support or sabotage whatever weight right. loss <laughs> efforts you're trying to make. Right. What about the fructose? You know, fructose has a low GI and has a low glycemic yeah. index, but it's a different beast in itself. And it's so prevalent in our society in the form of yeah. high fructose corn syrup and whatever have you. Yeah, it is. Well, and I think one of the main guys around that is Rob Lustig, who's done a lot of work with fructose. Right. And, right. And listening to him speak is is great experience. It's kind of like <laughs> drinking from a fire hose. Yeah. Well, fructose behaves differently. Fructose may have a low GI, but fructose is metabolized at the liver and actually requires and stimulates insulin-like growth factor, IGF. Right. And is metabolized in the liver. So 
there's a lot of literature that shows that sensitization and metabolic syndrome, that liver adiposity is related to fructose at the liver. So yeah, it may not raise your serum blood sugar much, but your liver is seeing quite a profound sugar load. Yeah, it's interesting because even though it has a low glycemic index, it still causes the fat deposition in the liver, which is very much responsible for the insulin resistance that we are trying to avoid, essentially. So yeah, it's very interesting. So, you know, even if it has a low GI, but fructose, but the thing is fruits have fructose in them. Fruits, all of them have fructose, but the thing is they have a casing of fiber and, you know, it also depends about on how much of it is available to the body to consume. So that's why an orange is better than orange juice. Absolutely. Well, and think about 16 ounce orange juice. I think I want to say there's something like about 15 sugar cubes equivalent in that. It's roughly, there's a lot of grams yeah. of glucose in a 16 ounce orange juice. But how many oranges did it take to make that juice? And practically speaking, people won't sit down and eat eight oranges in a row, but they'll drink a 16 ounce glass right. of orange juice. I think what ends up happening is part of it is also the marketing strategies talking about you know the vitamins that are going to be there in the juices and how nutritious it is but people just forget about the the sugar that's in there and it's a high glycemic index food whether you want to believe in in the glycemic index and glycemic load part of it or not but it's a high glycemic index and a high glycemic load just by the fact that there are so many freely available sugars present in the food right exactly that changes changes the way you think about a lot of things i mean like i say I think the concept of GIGL, glycemic index, glycemic load, is useful, but it certainly doesn't explain everything. And that example of fruit juice is, yeah. is a great example of that. Yeah. What ends up happening is, Dr. Linquist, that we don't just take one particular food throughout the meal. You know, when we're having, say, a breakfast or having a lunch, it's going to be a combination of things, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to have some sort of a grain or some sort of a bread. Along with that, there's going to be some either vegetable or some protein. And then you're going to have something else along with that. So it becomes very confusing because you're mixing some foods that are high glycemic index and there are some foods that are low glycemic index. So it kind of, how do you wrap your head around the whole concept of, you know, combining everything together? Well, that's right. And we know, for example, that if you take a carbohydrate and you purify it and you take it in the pure form, you're going to get perhaps you know, a real spiky glycemic index experience. But as soon as you add fiber to it, it's going to slow the absorption. And if you put water and fiber together, for example, you mentioned fruit, that's changed things too. And I was thinking of something else. Oh, there was an interesting study came out about six or seven years ago that looked at the sequence of foods. And what they found was, and it was basically, if you ate protein before you ate carb, you blunted the glycemic response. Yeah, and that's one very small study from Cornell. But there's another one, I believe, from Israel that's out there talking about meal sequencing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was another interesting concept that had come out was what do you eat first and what do you eat later? But, you know, the way I see it is, if you can, you're better off avoiding foods that are high glycemic index and fructose in its pure form. Right. Yeah. I tend to agree with that. I hear some of my colleagues talking over my shoulder, figuratively speaking, that would say, well, you know, it depends. If you're carbohydrate resistant, in a sense, or if you're insulin resistant, then you're going to have a different enough response, perhaps, to that ingested carbohydrate, that ingested sugar, than someone who's not insulin resistant. And so it does make a difference. In a practical sense, 
it's kind of a difference that doesn't really matter because if you look at the fact that two-thirds of our population has overweight and obesity, and in a typical obesity-type practice, we have 45 to 50% plus percent of our patients who have metabolic syndrome right. or diabetes, I never see those people that are insulin, that are, <laughs> that are carbohydrate yeah. Yeah. yeah, I don't see them. I mean, I know they exist. And I know that if you are insulin resistant and you use a reduced carbohydrate strategy over time, you actually improve your insulin resistance. Your right. body's ability to deal with it is improved. The question is, what happens if you go back to the previous way of eating? What happens to your insulin resistance? And what we know is that, well, it gets worse again. Yeah. The same way that you can lose weight, 40 pounds, and put it back on, and your problems come back. So absolutely long-term strategy. But you know, then it gets now now you get into the philosophy around nutrition. Okay. <laughs> absolutely. <yeah. laughs> I work really hard to stay out of the diet wars. I agree with you. (laughs) You know, I do. And in in obesity care, my default is a reduced carbohydrate strategy with enhanced protein because of muscle signaling from protein and leucine and et cetera. We can talk about that in detail if you want to. But as an obesity medicine specialist, my long lever is a reduced carbohydrate strategy. Right. And that leads into what do you actually eat? And I think at some point, if we ate food, back to your earlier point, if we ate food that looked like food that our great-great-grandparents would recognize as food, we're probably fine. Yeah, that's the key. Right? It should look like food. Should, Most yeah. of us are not eating food. Uh, these days. No, we're eating food-like products. <laughs> <laughs> that's a nice way to put it. <laughs> Somebody still wants to follow, say, you know, talk about glycemic index, glycemic load. People out there obviously don't know about this, and it's not mentioned on the labels that whether they're high glycemic index or not, how do they go and, you know, shop around for foods that are low glycemic index and low glycemic load? What should they be looking for? Right. Well, that's an interesting question. I think that first to start out with is that if you put it in your mouth and it tastes sweet, it's probably got a high glycemic index. And depending on how much you eat and given the portions that come prepackaged for us, you're probably going to get a high glycemic load. So if it tastes sweet, that's one way to think about it. And certainly you have to be kind of careful. But if you look at some of the more popular like tomato paste or tomato sauce, how do I put this? The food products that resemble tomato sauce. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. The number two ingredient is sugar. So you may think, well, gee, I'm making a tomato sauce on something and I'm going to put it on vegetables. It's going to be super healthy. And you realize it's super, it's loaded with sugar. So you have to taste it. You have to look at the label. So taste is one thing. And I think another easy rule to remember is that if it's highly processed, it's probably got a high glycemic load and probably has a high glycemic index as well. Because highly processed foods don't have all that fiber and water and they don't require all that other stuff, that other digestion to break down the the carbohydrates into digestible forms. I have another simple rule for people. Just look for foods that don't come with a label. Oh, there you go. (laughs) I like it. Yeah, I mean, the other thing is that even if you're going for, say, pastes and purees, what's happened is that we've become so accustomed to everything containing sugar that we've kind of become tolerant to it. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, even if you go buy a tomato puree and it has sugar in it, you may not find it sweet. 
That's right. When you eat it. So you really have to gauge by what the label says. And what I tend to do is stay away from anything that says it has whatever added sugar. So I use that as a gauge because if I'm going to rely just on my palate, I think I'm going to get fooled very easily just because of the fact that there's so much of sugar around us. There's a constant exposure. We're bombarded with sugar. So we get used to the taste of sugar. And what's supposed to taste very, very sweet to us tastes like mildly sweet. And what's not supposed to be sweet just tastes like normal to us. And if we actually ate the actual food, instead of eating it in that processed form, it would taste much more different than purees and whatever. No, that's a great way to put it. And, you know, the restaurateurs will tell us that the tools that they have to make sure that the people are pal- eat that are palatable foods, right? Salt and sugar, oh, right? Absolutely. So everything's loaded with it. Absolutely, yeah. Well, and from a perspective of weight loss, it's interesting too, because I get a lot of people who will come in and they'll say, I eat healthy. And when you talk with them, they are truly oriented towards having a healthy lifestyle. They want to have families. They want to work. They want to have lives. They want to eat healthy. And I said, well, okay, so you're basically healthy. Dr. Lindquist, I don't know what's wrong. I eat healthy. I go, okay, so what'd you have for breakfast? They go, well, I had granola and yogurt and fruit. I go, okay. So (laughs) I go, well, is that... Tell me how much fat is in there. Oh, very little because it's low fat. Well, they haven't probably looked at the fat content in granola, I'm guessing. Okay. So how much protein is in there? Well, I don't know. Plenty. I go, is there any protein in your fruit? No. Is there any protein in your granola? Not very much. Maybe if there's some nuts, you might get a little bit, right? And there's maybe a little bit of grain protein. How about from the yogurt? And then you look at the label and it's six grams of protein and 26 grams of carbohydrate. Right. And so here's a person that's had 450 calories for breakfast that they think is healthy. And I could run the math. They probably got, I'm going to say, 70, 80 grams of sugar, of of carbohydrate, basically sugar. And which is, boy, you're going to spend a lot of time recovering from that sugar. Oh, yes. Absolutely. The, The problem is with processed food is there are several problems, actually. So... One is that, you know, if you go into that realm of, say, flour and breaking down the nutrients, it basically what ends up happening is when you're milling down whole grains, the surface area increases. Mm -hmm. So even though they're writing whole grains on anything, it's very different. And, you know, even, for example, for oats, we commonly use rolled oats, right? What ends up happening, it's still a processed food. It's not your whole oats. A whole oat is very different from a rolled oat because a rolled oat has been steamed, it has been pressed, and it increases the surface area. And once the surface area increases, your absorption of those carbohydrates increases. That's right. And that automatically shoots up the glycemic index. Now, the glycemic load may be the same for those oats, but the index is higher because you're absorbing more of it because less of it is tied to fiber. So the way I look at it is try to stay away from processed foods as much as possible. Agreed. Unless, of course, they are on, you know, something like meal replacements, which have been prescribed to them, which is completely different. Mm -hmm. But try to stay away from processed foods because the way they are processed is going to make them more available. The reason why they're processed is to make them more attractive. Mm -hmm. So that's the way I look at it. And I think the other way I look at it, it's a very common thing that I picked up from so many practitioners, you know, so many other obesity specialists is, People should try and shop around the periphery of the grocery store. That's right. Yeah. 
all of those foods are going to be low glycemic index or low glycemic. They may not be low glycemic load, but the thing is that if you're going to have those whole foods, you're not going to be able to consume a huge amount of that food. So the load is going to go down. That's right. That's right. Yet there is a volumetric approach. You can eat all the broccoli. Actually, you could probably eat all the soaked and steamed bulgur or whole grains that you wanted, and you're still going to get relatively low caloric load overall, and right. a low glycemic index, low glycemic load. But your point about walking around the periphery of the store is a good one, which we're kind of dancing around a, an interesting area, which I think has to do with awareness right, and mindfulness and intentionality. You know, I'll tell you right now, if it's my daughter's birthday, I'm probably going to have some chocolate cake and I'm not going <laughs> to worry about it. But I'm going, okay, that's all right. This is a birthday. Most sure. of the time, what do you eat? You know, none of us are perfect. We're all hopefully getting better at what we're doing. We're all learning and being mindful, being intentional, continue to, to keep our heads in the game so we learn more about it and we right. learn how to understand what's in the processed foods that we're eating and how to make better choices, just sort of like you said. Right. Yeah, I think that's a key takeaway. Just walk around the peripheries and you'll be able to easily guess that these are all low glycemic index and relatively low glycemic load foods, which are good for you. Because, you know, a lot of times, even the labels, for example, you go to the grocery stores and you're buying foods that packaged foods, say that whole grains, healthy, blah, blah, blah. And you look at the label and you're like, you got to be kidding me. You can't just say that this is a superfood and just put tons of sugar in it. This is just ridiculous. That just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Well, I like, you know, white rice and brown rice. Well, how about brown rice? Yeah. Dr. Linguist, I, I've been eating brown rice. I go, well, okay. That's like white rice that's basically brown. Right. If you look at the nutritional value of it. Right. If you were eating whole rice, rice. with the germ, the protein in the center. Right. And the husk and the fiber, the surface area exposure is not very high. You're right. That's probably a different story. But brown rice, it's just like white rice most of the time. It's just like white rice that's brown. If you walk down the supermarket and you hold up the two bags, they're basically one's brown and one's white. And it's not (laughs) a big difference there. Right, right. No, absolutely. I agree with you. I think that's the key. And I think that's why eating more whole foods is really a good gauge or buying more whole foods when you're in the supermarket is a good gauge that you're buying low glycemic index foods. And just the other thing is just to make sure a lot of times what ends up happening is if you read the label and if you look at the ingredients per se, they may not list cane sugar or just plain sugar there. They may list something else. They may list molasses. It was very interesting. I actually came across, I don't know if I was watching a video or I was watching or I was reading it online. Um, There are like 30 or 40 different names that they use to kind of basically types of sugars that they put into the, the foods. And it can be molasses, it's honey, molasses, agave, cane sugar, and then, and then coconut sugar, and then they'll yeah. just put organic in front of it, as if that makes a difference. That's right. <laughs> so That's so right. I think the way to look at it is, you look at the total number of carbohydrates, and then you look at the total number of sugars, and you see what are the added sugars. And that is the key, like the added sugars part is the key when you're looking at the nutritional label. That tells you that this is the extra amount of sugar, no matter what form it is in, that's been added to it. So I try to stay away from anything that has an added sugar. 
So that yeah. that's that's very important. And the other thing is, of course, how much of that food has been processed because. If it's more bioavailable to you, if, if it's more available for absorption, then it's going to have a higher glycemic index, per Absolutely. se. Yeah, and you lead into a really interesting point about sweeteners on labels is, you know, well, how about sugar alcohols, right? Right. Because you got sugar alcohols. Well, they're not really an artificial sweetener. They're kind of, they're a sugar, but their chemical structure is alcohol moiety instead of being a simple sugar. So well, what does that do? You know, my take on that is that basically most sugar alcohols are roughly half of what standard glucose would be or standard sugar would be, right. sucrose or honey or any other sugar in terms of calories. So you're still getting some calories from the sugar alcohols. They do vary, by the way. If you pull up a list of sugar alcohols, you can, right. there's kind of a hierarchy, but they're roughly two kilocalories per gram. Yeah, and, uh, and the other thing I want to point out is whether you're using honey or whether you're using agave or whether you're using organic honey, it's the same. It's sugar. Same. It doesn't matter. It's not healthier than cane sugar, and it's not worse than cane sugar. Yeah. That's all marketing. In terms of purely in terms of obesity, now they do talk about you know using manuka honey because it has some antioxidant. But you know what? It doesn't matter in terms of obesity. It's all the body doesn't recognize manuka honey or doesn't recognize organic honey from versus cane sugar. No, that's right. You have to sort of prioritize your hierarchy of what you think the important thing is. If you eat that honey because it may have a, a micronutrient in it. Well, I'm sorry. There's probably other ways to get the yeah, absolutely. other than loading up with the, the sugar. And a big one nowadays is uh, with soda. Our soda, it doesn't have corn syrup in it. It doesn't have high fructose corn syrup. <laughs> it has natural cane sugar. Right. Okay. Well, it's an interesting point that cane sugar is 50% fructose and 50% glucose. High fructose corn syrup is 55% fructose and 45% <laughs> glucose. So that's really the only difference is that you get more of a sweet hit from the fructose. So when we changed our food subsidy policy, and we're going way, way <laughs> back here, okay, back into the 70s, into the Nixon administration, right? when all of a sudden now farmers were being subsidized to grow number two corn, all of a sudden we had all these corn byproducts. Right. And that's when corn syrup really and the fructose came into being and i think that's when the whole conversation started because i think the glycemic index conversation as you'd mentioned started in the 1980s correct and then that's when the high fructose corn syrup and everything was booming as well and i think that's where the whole concept started about you know well the fructose doesn't have that high of a glycemic index so it's probably okay but it really is actually worse than glucose if you look at it in terms of obesity because it does cause fat deposition in the liver Right. which really does cause insulin resistance. That's right. So it's like we stumble along and we think that one thing is the case. And and there are people whose livelihoods were dependent upon the fact that they needed to sell more high fructose corn syrup, right? right. Made a lot of money off that. And like we figure out, oh, it's not so good. Maybe that's part of the, part of the trigger for metabolic syndrome and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is now called, oh, what's the new term? I saw it last, a few days ago. It has to do because the thought was like it's, they didn't want to stigmatize the alcohol side of things. And it's actually oh, probably see. a better term. And I, I apologize for being so non-articulate right now. But the whole point is that non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and this whole epidemic of steatohepatitis that we have, you can trace it right back to the carbohydrates in our diet. And you can absolutely. certainly make a strong case that fructose is oh, absolutely. a big driver. Well, this has been an interesting episode, Dr. Linquist. Thank you so much, listeners. I want to hear more from you. 
I would appreciate if you could just spend a few minutes to write a comment, leave a review, or just say hi. Let me know if there are any specific topics that you would want me to cover. And if you're finding this podcast valuable, please share it with whoever you think will find it useful. Thank you so much, Dr. Lindquist, for joining me today and enlightening us on glycemic index and glycemic load. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. I'll see you all next time. All right. Thanks, Avishkar, and uh, thank you, everyone. You've been listening to the Decoding Obesity Podcast. Please remember, the information in this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are solely of the host and his guests and do not constitute medical advice. Views and opinions on this show do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of any organization. And that brings us to the end of the show. Thank you so much for listening in. Don't forget to visit our website, www.decodingobesity.com, for show notes and more info. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.